Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. I'm the McGarry portion of that. Mm-hmm. Je m'appelle Mackling. Hello. Fred McGarry, Greg Hello. Mackling. Hello. Hello. A classic Seinfeld episode. La la la. <laughs> you have to stop doing the hello. I have to stop doing it all together. <laughs> <laughs> Look that one up if you're not familiar with the Seinfeld. The hello episode. Jerry ends up breaking up with this woman because she won't let him do the hello voice anymore. But then the friends get tired of it, so he wants to go back to her, right? It's too late. Yeah. It's too late. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The wheels are already off the bus. Yeah. That doesn't take very long, typically, for us. Yeah. As mentioned with our friend Jeff Curry, we'll be talking about the rules of golf a little bit later on, some of the proposals uh, for changes to the rules. We'll also speak with Kirby Sheppies, the head coach of the University of Manitoba Bison men's basketball team, looking to go to the national championships. For Canadian University Sports, for the first time since 1985 for the Bison. So, big weekend for them in Calgary this weekend. And we're also going to learn about the Run to Quit program. You didn't have to start running to quit smoking, but Run to Quit seems to have an outstanding success rate. We'll learn a little bit about what that is, Brett. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, I, I did, well, maybe had I started this program, it would have been a quicker process for me because it did take me over a year to quit smoking. But there is uh, some evidence here that if you start running in a group in particular, that it might help you with your uh, odds at success in trying to quit smoking. And that's one, one of my friends, uh, he, he, when he started to quit smoking, he was a big boy. He was well over 300 pounds and he was much shorter than me. He was, uh, he was a big lad. And when he started he wasn't in doing it to lose weight. He just noticed when he stopped smoking and switched to vaping, at least, that he suddenly had way more wind, mm-hmm. and he it was easier to get up the stairs. And he just felt he just it was this happy byproduct. He was like, "Wow, I have more. I can breathe now. I can actually maybe do some exercise." And he's lost like over half of his body weight. Outstanding. Yeah, he's completely transformed himself. So it's just a, so this will help you incur, help encourage you to do the exercise and then maybe the getting addicted to the exercise will help erase your smoking addiction. Speaking of exercise, a place that a lot of our kids and a lot of adults get their exercise are on the city playing fields and some of them are an absolute disaster. In terms of their condition, if you go to cjob.com, you can engage in the city's latest survey. This one has to do with our view of sports fields and the public's input. We'll talk about this at 2.30. Ironic if you go to cjob.com to find the link to this survey. The picture that we have posted is uh, essentially a field full of dandelions. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little edi- editorializing there on the part of CJOB, and uh, we'll do some of our own edi- editorializing along with your help, hopefully, uh, in 2.30. But we wanted to get back to something we discussed yesterday, Brett, and I yes. thought you did an outstanding job of recognizing something that Bill Fug- Fugler had said to us, the uh, owner of the neighborhood bookstore and cafe on Westminster. And he was discussing his interaction with City Hall, and he had a lengthy dispute. The city suggested that he needed a grease trap because of the types of food that he was serving him. Because That's he was in a his restaurant. plumbing, right? That's in his plumbing. That's kind of to save the overall neighborhood plumbing, for lack of better uh, description. 
It turns out that the city and Fugler have compromised and he's now serving his food on paper plates that can go directly into the garbage or the recycling. But he said something to us yesterday that we thought we should highlight today and get your comments on. And the councillors were even stranger because the councillors were saying, oh, my goodness, you know, what would the fallout be if we were to grant Mr. Fugler the right to wash his dishes? And I thought, what do you what do you mean? And they said, oh, lots of people would small businesses across the city would come up and they'd start asking for things. And I was thinking, well, isn't that what you want as a city? Don't you want to support small businesses? And that was the about 30 seconds that really stuck out for you with Bill. Yeah, it's a, he's he's right. Don't you want small business? Don't you want to work with small business rather than, than create this sort of almost like a me versus you mentality? I mean, here's a guy who he said, like he says, I don't... <laughs> I don't make food that is greasy. He makes sandwiches and desserts. Sounds like he serves cake. So a grease trap is probably unnecessary. But they they said, well, no, it's just sort of a blanket thing. And that would have cost him thousands of dollars to do. So he had to shut down for a little while before they came up with this compromise. But now in the environmentally friendly neighborhood that is Wolseley, here's a guy who now has to use paper plates. So that probably doesn't sit entirely well, but it's a compromise. And I'm sure that the people in the neighborhood probably know sure. his story. Oh, I'm sure they do. But it's still, you know, of, of all the neighborhoods, it is sort of a sad irony that that's the neighborhood where this compromise has been made. So it, it just seems to me that he, he's, he hit it right on the head. Don't you want to work with your small business? Don't you want to encourage small business and find appropriate compromises or make it easier rather than, than let's butt heads, let's lock horns like a couple of rams on the field or whatever, you know? Well, we've heard that the city is trying to streamline some of the red tape for permits. I've been in conversation with a couple of diff- different business owners over the last two months that are running into red tape as it pertains to getting occupancy permits and getting rezoning for parking. One area of the city in particular where there's a complete moratorium on any zoning changes whatsoever because they're waiting for a neighborhood master plan. But because there is no developer coming to the table to create this master plan, the city's unwilling to create their own master plan, they're hoping that a developer will do it because they cost tens of thousands of dollars to create these master plans, these master visions for a certain neighborhoods. And so in the meantime, you've got landlords and people that own property with spaces to rent that are in limbo. You've got businesses that are looking to stay in certain neighborhoods, but at the same time expand their customer bases being told, no, you can't have, you can't, go there there's no unless it's the exact reason or the exact use that this is zoned for we aren't accepting any applications in order to change the zoning so i know that there are people that are frustrated with some of the things that are going on in the city right now business owners that are trying to improve and to make things better and we'd like to hear from you gmac at cgob.com brett at cgob.com and as the general public are you running into this are you frustrated with the idea that small businesses uh, like the neighborhood cafe and bookstore are running into what seem to be situations that could be rectified 
with a little bit of common sense and a little bit of negotiation. Yeah, why impose a grease trap on a store that, I mean, it'd be one thing if he made burgers and fries. Yes. I mean, I were, or any, or any kind of a food like that. I worked at Taco Bell, for example. We had a grease trap under our fryer. And yeah, you wouldn't want that going into the pipes. Obviously, this was a separate trap, but still, point is, uh, if we all the dishes that we cleaned, we clearly would have had a grease trap sure. in our plumbing because it was gross. But he's making ham sandwiches and serving cake. I I don't know. So that just seems like it almost it almost smacks of I, I dare use the word vendetta, and I don't want to make any accusations. But it just it seems that's what it that's on the surface. That's kind of how it strikes me. Just looking. On the, looking uh, through the window, that's what I would imagine. So. It feels like a lack of common sense and a lack of ability to look at the big picture and understand whether or not we need to impose these sort of restrictions on every single business just because they fall under a certain blanket category of restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, and the idea of encouraging these smaller pockets of development, these little neighborhoods, these little neighborhood cafes that are great for different parts of the city create character, create opportunities for people to meet one another. Bill was talking to us yesterday. One of the reasons he created this space was because he was noticing that people were kind of hanging out on the street, chit-chatting, because they had nowhere to go, nowhere to hang out. People that were normally neighbors, I guess you could go to one another's house, but, you know, uh, I'm not always inviting my neighbors into my house as much as I like them. Onto the deck for a beer in the summertime? Different story. Because it's a little bit easier to keep the back deck clean as opposed to the whole house. <laughs> True. So you can invite the neighbors in. Anyway, we wanted to get some. We wanted to get some feedback from you. Seven eight zero six eight six eight by talk or by text. Please send us your comments now. Go two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. Are you a small business owner? Have you encountered this sort of thing? Do you know small business owners who have had to butt heads with the city? 204-780-6868. Would love to hear your feedback. Like Greg said, talk or text. Your forecast is up next. I guess you read the work that you're doing ahead of time. Holy moly, minus 25 tonight. Yeah, it's uh, just looking at the forecast for Gillum. It's not. <laughs> I was kind of looking to <laughs> How see. How close is it? It's uh, low minus thirty one. Wind chill minus forty three. Yeah, so. so it's pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. Still warmer here, though. In quotation marks, more warmer. He's Brett. I'm Greg. Hope you're having a great afternoon. We're asking the question: Have you had some ridiculous uh, interactions with the city? I know that's a really broad question. Uh, we're trying to make it a little bit more specific, Brett. In terms of small businesses and 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 trying to make the neighborhood better and running into regulations rules, permitting that is required for things that, you know, really don't apply, right? A a lack of common sense being issued or not being conducted with City Hall. I know it frustrates a lot of people. Bill Fugler is the owner at the Neighborhood Bookstore and Cafe in Wolseley at 898 Westminster, and he was in a dispute with the city. They told him that he now needed a grease trap. This was last year. needed a grease trap in his plumbing, because he's serving food, but the food he's serving is like he's making ham sandwiches and he serves cake and stuff like that. So nothing heavily greasy, but they said, hey, you got to have a grease trap. So he couldn't afford to do that. So he had to shut down. But they have since reached a compromise where he doesn't have to use. He can just use paper plates. So all of his dishes go in the garbage. So that's the compromise. Wanted to know. And he asked the question, shouldn't the city want to work 
with small businesses to try to find solutions rather than just have these kind of difficult blanket rules. So we wanted to know what you thought about that. Curtis, is that 204-780-6868? Curtis, welcome. What are your thoughts, sir? Well, all that's in the building and plumbing codes, and it stands for everybody and it protects the public. Who's to say that this guy isn't tomorrow going to decide to cook something else or do something different? We can't have inspectors coming by all the time. I think that's, that's a, I think that's a fair point, Curtis. You know, it's just to protect the public, and it's fair for every business. And as far as, as far as the cost, I mean, it makes it sound like it's incredible that he's got to shut down his business. It's about. $500 labor and material. Well, and Curtis, what we, Curtis, what we didn't play today was the extended part of the interview where when he was at 2006, Greg, that he yes. opened the business. So he designed, he built everything that was up to code then, but then in, the codes changed and he didn't have room for the trap. So he would have had to put in 5000 or $6,000 worth of cost because they would have had to gut the place to make this grease trap fit. Well, the grease traps come in all different sizes, and from the size of sink he has, he would have needed the small one, which is about $300, and well, another $300. Well, Curtis, I would suspect that Mr. Fugler uh, wouldn't have had the uh, back and forth with the city that he had if it was a $300 question. We're going to take him at his word that it was a $6,000 endeavor for him, but you make a great point. These things are to protect everyone, and I was mentioning to Brett off-air, not everyone is a good steward of the of the plumbing system and of the sewer system in the city of Winnipeg. In fact, a lot of people dump tons of stuff in their homes that they should never dump down a sewer, but they do it without any regard. And most people do it out of ignorance because they don't really understand the repercussions of dumping down, let's say, a frying pan full of bacon grease. I know a lot of people who do that don't even realize you should be disposing that in a different fashion. I would love to have a grease trap on all the different sinks in my uh, rental properties because people just don't always think about what they're doing. You make a great point. Absolutely. Thanks, partner. Have a great day. You too. We're getting a lot of texts at 204-780-6868. And uh, one of them is, this is uh, from a guy named Jeff, and he says, we're doing a job right now and we need to put a grease trap in for a glass washer. And we confirmed, so only glassware being washed and only glasses. And he says, yes, glasses only. Doesn't affect me, he says, but I just think it's kind of a a silly rule. Another text here is somebody says, who is on the other side here. I bought a grease trap for $500 and installed for $400. We're talking, uh, let's see, it says that's life and small business. And how does the city know when this guy decides to Buy a wiener roller for his business. This is small-minded thinking. And what about all of us who are in compliance? He is way out of line. So this is a, a fellow small business owner who suggests that Bill is out of line. Jack says, uh, guys, the stupidity of the situation is crazy. My questions will always be, what is the difference between what we put down our house sink as opposed to him? 780-6868. We've got a call from Beryl. Hello, Beryl. What are your thoughts? Um, I just think that your fellow that says $300 for that uh, grease trap is way out of line because um, we've had an incident over the past year at the Army and Navy where I'm a member of the Ladies Auxiliary. Uh, our canteen didn't have a grease trap. Um, 
And uh, so in order for them to have one, it was a cost of about $4,500, which uh, they couldn't absorb at the time. And so they opened the wall into the auxiliary kitchen, and they now use our washing facilities. So um, it is a very costly uh, endeavor, especially if you have to move your plumbing around or go into your already existing floor. And uh, the irony of this is I understand there was one, a smaller one, in the canteen, and nobody bothered to open it. And all the inspections we've had were never you know, this was never questioned before. The people in the canteens disposed of their grease and oils other than their dishwasher, which they're now sharing with the ladies. Um, so it's, it's not something small. It's, um, And I think it, it fits the whims of whoever happens to be the inspectors at the time. I hate to say that, but uh, we have a stove we never never fry on. And we had to, to um, install overhead um, spray systems. And this is the first time in 20 years. And we've had many inspections. All of a sudden, this is compulsory and at a great cost. Beryl, I'm so going to put you on hold. I'm going to ask that you uh, give our producer, Jeffrey Forche, your phone number. I'd like to get some more details on what you've been dealing with at your organization because uh, these small organizations, legions, etc., uh, I know I've been reading that uh, the, some of these changing rules over the last several years have been affecting those organizations with kitchens, etc., uh, particularly hard. So I'd like to know a little bit more from Beryl about what her experience has been without question. So thank you very much for your feedback on this and Again, with the situation with Bill, he said that he would have had to do a similar thing to what Beryl was talking about. He would have had to, they would have had to go in through the wall and tear this out and tear this out. And there, there would have been a significant retrofit in order to make the grease trap fit. That's why it was a costly endeavor. So we just wanted to know what your thoughts are, and we appreciate your thoughts. And you can email us, brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com. Sorry, Brett. I don't know if we read this one real quick. We are doing a job right now. We need to put a grease trap in for a glass washer. I already read that. Oh, you did wash it? Read it? Sorry. I must have been reading something else. (laughs) Doesn't affect me. I think that's just a ridiculous rule. 127 on 680 CJOB Global News up next. You're like the expert now on quitting smoking. <laughs> I don't know about that. Were you like a day 125? Uh, have you quit or have you quit counting the days since you no, quit? No, today would be 123 because uh, Monday was 121. Yeah. I believe. Let me check. I, I, I try to put little reminders in here and there just so I don't forget because the the date count is important to me. Even though uh, some suggested that it would be counterproductive. Yeah, foolhardy, I think, is what Shadow Davis said. Well, yeah, different things for different people. For for me, as long as I recognize that I am an addict, I could easily go back. (laughs) So now I'm at at date 121. I don't want to lose. I don't want to give up on that momentum. The Canadian Cancer Society is releasing a study from the University of British Columbia that suggests... Hey, if you want to quit smoking, as opposed to cold turkey, which the success rate, by the way, Brett, you are really bucking the trend here. It's two to four percent. Well, I didn't quit two to four. Or I didn't quit cold turkey. I was on the patch. I tried cold turkey and failed. Okay. So I would be. Never uh, mind then. Shadow and uh, Jeff Braun. They are in the two to four percent. Well, the quit rate or the the run to quit program. It's a 10 
eight-week group exercise of smokers leads to an impressive quit rate of 40%. Six months after the program finished and 43% replaced the smoking habit with running three times a week. That's even better. Impressive. Not only are you quitting, but you're replacing it with something that's, you know, even better for you than Mm. doing nothing. And that's running. So joining us to tell us a little bit more about this study is Katina Caminos. She's National Run to Quit Manager, Canadian Cancer Society. Katina, how did I do uh, on either of your names there? Did I do you all right? You did very well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Good, thank you. For jo- <laughs> thank you very much. Is that a uh, little Greek in both of those names there? It is in both, exactly. So on you, both sides. <laughs> you're, you're joining us from Toronto, uh, the heart okay. of the Greek community, some would say, in our country. So oh, I would, I, I, yeah, I would, I'd, I'd love uh, <laughs> to come down for some food uh, down, but we're talking about exercise. That's right. <laughs> Something that I don't don't do particularly well, uh, not nearly as well as I used to do. But talk about this idea of replacing a bad habit with a good habit. Talk about a double win for everyone involved. Yes, we're really excited. Uh, it's in partnership with the Running Room Canada Incorporated. We're using their Learn to Walk Run 5 Kilometer um, training program along with our cessation program Um, and this program is funded in part by the Public Health Agency of Canada so the Government of Canada and we're so excited that we're seeing these results um, after the first year. We started off in 23 running room stores. We've got the online program going across Canada. This year we're in 50 running room stores and next year we're going to be in all of them and again um, really supporting Canadians across the country in both languages to help them learn how to cope with their discomfort through encouraging them to try to be more physically active by running or walking up to five kilometers and then more. We're seeing people take it from there doing 10 kilometers, half marathons. It's, it's really inspiring. Would it be, wouldn't it be difficult for a lot of smokers to just immediately say, okay, I'm done smoking and I'm going to start running right now? Like, because I, when I was a smoker, uh, my lungs were always really clogged up. Yes, and, and, and definitely. It's, it's not easy, and we know we're asking people to do two really, really big things. So it, it, our program is really over 10 weeks, and it helps people step by step uh, in those 10 weeks to overcome um, not only, uh, you know, the, 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 the smoking, so they're quitting smoking, but also learning progressively how to run. So, for example, um, in the in-store program, the first day you're going to walk two minutes, run one minute. And, per, and slowly over those 10 weeks, uh, we saw the groups not only start thinking of themselves less as smokers, but more as runners uh, mm. as, as the study went on. I think that's spectacular. We visited with mm. the founder of The Running Room, John Stanton, just a few weeks ago. And oh, he shared with us his story of starting out really as a sedentarian, right? He didn't do very much at all. And, and he right. would run uh, to, a, to a light stand or a street light pole and then walk to the next one, run, walk, run, walk. And that's how his whole journey to running room and owning the running room and creating this different culture, this, this group culture in running in Canada started with just one basic change for him. And that was just to get out and start moving. 
That's right. And we're seeing that um, across the country as well. Last year, I actually participated with a group of, of smokers um, at one of the stores in Toronto, and every single one of them had the exact same worry. They thought coming in, everybody's going to be runners. I don't run. They were really worried. And then the second they came in on that first day, we welcomed them. We made sure that they knew that we were here to support them. And it was really as gradual as they needed to be so that they could achieve their goal of quitting smoking and, and running. Is it also partly maybe giving smokers something new to focus on so that they're, they can distract themselves from thinking about smoking? Yes, absolutely. And a few of our participants last year said that, that, that exact thing. They said, you know what, you don't have to worry about anything. You just put on your runners, you lace up, and you go out for a walk. You go out for a run. So when that craving comes, when, those, when that stress hits, and instead of you know, going out and having a smoke, some of them would actually walk around the block at work or, or lace up and actually go for a run, even in the middle of the day or after work or early in the morning. Whenever they felt that urge come on, that walking and running really helped them through uh, the uh, the urge to smoke, the the trigger to smoke, and and all those things that you know you you kind of uh, you you always when smoking. My understanding is, and I, and I haven't smoked, but I know a lot of people who have, and how difficult it has been for them to quit. Um, it's always related to something. That first coffee in the morning, the lunch break, the afternoon break. So by lacing up and either walking or running during that time to replace that trigger really helped them a lot. And the, the social side of this, as John told us uh, about the culture of the running room and people getting together for their Wednesday night or their Sunday runs, just this idea of it's so much easier to accomplish something when you're in this group setting, when you're encouraging one another to succeed. It is, and, and you're really not only there to say, you know, you can do it, but to listen to the other person and sharing um, uh, stories, sharing experiences, I think, I think also helped people understand that they weren't in it alone, their experience mattered, and they were really doing something really great for themselves and their families. And they were able, to your point, not only to go out once a week to our, our sessions specifically for Run to Quit, but they were able to go to the Wednesday night and Sunday morning run clubs where they met others as well. And so many runners that we've met over time used to be smokers as well, so it, it, it seems to be um, a good way to replace one addiction with what many, what many think, you know, they, they feel that running is an addiction of like a really good one as well that really keeps them physically fit and active for the rest of their lives. Katina Caminos is the National Run to Quit Manager with the Canadian Cancer Society. And we're talking about how this new study confirms that run to quit helps to boost physical activity and cut down on smoking. And Katina, through this program and the people that you've worked with, uh, let me give you an example, actually, before I ask your question. A friend of mine, okay. he, re, or he switched to vaping. So he, he still vapes, but he quit smoking, I don't know, I want to say four years ago. And one of the things he noticed immediately was that he was no longer winded. So that actually, he started to lose weight because he just found himself more active simply because he was able to do it. And then he became more physically active and lost a ton, like well over 100 pounds. So I guess my question to you is, are you finding that people, once they start this program and they couple that with the lack of smoking, that they become, uh, they, they just, they look forward to trying to be more physically fit? Yes, I think so. And I think as soon as you start to be more physically fit, as soon as you go beyond that one a day, one a week, twice a week to the three a week um, 
period where you're we're working out a little bit more, um, it, it really helps with not only the withdrawal systems, uh, symptoms rather, but your stress levels. And I think that people, as they did more, identified more as runners. And, and you're right, I think that in many cases, um, quitting smoking is related to gaining weight because, you know, it's that, it's that nicotine that helps, um, helps keep weight down for some people. But um, through running or walking uh, and doing it at least three times a week, it helps with both. So this is really, uh, as we mentioned off the top, uh, one of those win-win situations where, you know, you're not only are you moving, but you're quitting smoking and then you throw in the social aspect and people who are now getting more involved, uh, not only if you're getting involved in running, then, you know, a lot of these runs have charities attached to them. There's just really uh, all sorts of cascading benefits here. That's true. And, and, you know, um, we also have, uh, you know, a Winnipeg store participating this year. We're across the country. It's a great way to introduce yourself to, to a new way of being active and, and it, it becoming a lifestyle change, definitely. Tell us about the Winnipeg uh, store. Yes, yeah, so we have um, both in-person clinics at um, the run- at 50 running rooms across the country this year. One of them is the Canastin uh, running room um, in Winnipeg, and that one starts on April 24th, which is a Monday, and it goes for 10 Mondays after that. And then we also have our online virtual program that anybody across the country can join across all of, of Manitoba, and that starts April 17th as well across the country. And we, we are there to support not only in helping people quit smoking, but also learning how to run, walk up to five kilometers in an easy way that, you know, we we teach you how not to worry about injury, what to do, how to eat better, so that it becomes a long-term lifestyle change. This is fascinating stuff, Katina. Thank you so much for taking some time with us this afternoon. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. That is Katina Komenos. She is National Run to Quit Manager, Canadian Cancer Society, and uh, we'll forgive... Katina for pronouncing Keniston incorrectly. It's a difficult one, even if you live in Winnipeg. So the Keniston Running Room Store, April 24th, it's 10 weeks. I think she said that's a Monday. It starts on Monday. And that's the Run to Quit program in person here in Winnipeg. And we didn't, you know, we didn't do, we didn't get the website for the online program. We'll have to get that for you and get it out to you. Just as soon as we can. <laughs> oh, there it is. Runtoquit.com. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Page three of the notes. Runtoquit.com. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Runtoquit.com. It's a great idea, I think, because it takes one bad habit and it replaces it with, doesn't just re- replace it with, you know, not having that bad habit, but it creates a, a new good habit uh, in terms of running and just being a healthier person. So, if you're uh, working on it, we got a text, by the way, from uh, Chris. I believe I saw it come in who says Chris is on day one. So this is day one for Chris. So good for you, Chris. Uh, keep it going. I know it might seem like you got a long way to go, but uh, just hang in there one day at a time. 146 on 680 CJOB. Your forecast is up next. We have some incredibly loyal listeners. Mm-hmm who text us all sorts of hilarious stuff that we simply cannot put on the air. (laughs) Our friend Bob in Oak Bank, he's a loyal listener. How are you doing today, Bob? Uh, His text message this afternoon on our last topic of conversation uh, has me laughing out loud. You want to share it with us, Brett? Bob in Oak Bank Bank (laughs) says, Hey guys, quit pushing the quit smoking on your show. Smiley face. If all the smokers 
quit, my alcohol prices are going to skyrocket. <laughs> Government has to get their taxes somewhere. That's great. <laughs> then he adds, let's get people to drink less. Liquor prices will drop. My God, we're taxed 300% on alcohol. Thank you, Bob, in Oak Bank. Yeah, I wonder if... Because people are... Well, that's why they keep raising the prices on the cigarettes, because people are quitting and they need the tax revenue. So, yeah, maybe they will raise it on the... the well, the, the sin tax. I know what happens every couple of years. So oh. we, we'll see the prices of alcohol go up sooner or later. Without question. I uh, suspect we have a budget coming down in not too distant future. And this should make its way into the news at the top of the hour at 2 o'clock, Global News with Tristan Field-Jones. The NDP has retorted, answered to the Premier's announcement that the MLAs are all accepting a wage freeze, except they are reminding the NDP is that Cabinet and Brian Pallister all accepted a $20,000 wage increase last year. Mm. So we'll be hearing more about that as we make our way throughout the afternoon, that coming from the NDP from their spokesperson, Rachel Morgan, just got that over the old email machine. Thought I'd share that with you. You want to be uh, paying attention at the top and the bottom of the hour with global news right here on 680 CJOB. What is this new app? Oh, where I can listen to all these great radio stations, all like basically all one application. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's a, it's a, an app called Radio Player. And, I mean, this is an app that has been around for a while, but it's great that uh, Chorus has jumped on board. It's a, an app that lets you listen to over 400 Canadian radio stations, wow. including 680 CJOB, Power 97, and Peggy at 99.1. You can download it in the App Store. You can download it Google Play. And it's essentially just another way to to gain access not only to our stations, but to a whole bunch of radio stations because a lot of times maybe you don't have access to radio or whatever, and you can just pull it up on your phone, and you away you go with whole bunch of different radio stations. Do you have an actual radio anymore in your house? In my house, just my alarm clock, which is not, it was a, like a $15 Walmart special, maybe $10. So we can sound like this. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> it's not something that I would uh, pump up the jams on, as it were, not so, to date myself. So, I mean, I listen exclusively online unless I'm in the car. Mm-hmm. I'm listening exclusively on my personal device on my iPhone. I'll declare I'm an Apple guy. And uh, it's incredible. The sound quality is so much different than it is over the air on AM680. Yes. Which is outstanding, especially when we have our little audio Snickers bars. That is true. The the, the AM dial, it it still has its, uh, I mean, hey, it's, I know. It has its charm. It has its charm and it has its, uh, its reach, but it doesn't sound as good as when you hear it on the radio as it does through our studio recordings or our studio feed. So it's nice to be able to have that. So the app, once again, is called Radio Player Canada. You can access that, and it will give you access to 680 CJOB, Power 97, Winnipeg's Rock, and uh, Peggy at 99.1 all through your phone. I know you've pledged never to buy a home again. Yeah. I wonder if our friend Sean Cooper, who will join us in the next half hour, will change your mind. He managed to pay off his mortgage in three 
years. I said, pardon? Three years. He's got a new book out. It launches today. It's called Burn Your Mortgage. He's going to give us some insight into how he managed to pay his mortgage off in three years. It wasn't easy by any stretch of the imagination. There's no magic pill. There's no magic trick. He didn't trick the bank. It was all hard work, and three years might be unrealistic for some of us, but accelerating the time in which we pay our mortgage might be a great idea for a lot of people. I mentioned to you, if I ever won the lottery, that's what I would be doing for my friends and and families, to pay their mortgages off. What greater gift in life is there than to live rent or mortgage-free? So you'll want to stick around as we uh, kick off hour two of the program and visit with Sean Cooper. He's going to talk about his book called Burn Your Mortgage. I've been wondering about that. And just uh, hypothetically, let's say you did win a lottery mm-hmm. and you want to pay off your friend's mortgages. What happens if for one of your friends, like let's say one of your best, oldest friends, and I don't know what the situation is, but let's just say hypothetically, hypothetically that that person... They bought a house that's a little older, and the mortgage that they still owe is not nearly as much as, say, friend B, who just bought a brand new house. We could negotiate, of course. So would it be easier to just hand out a flat amount rather than pay off? Than no, like I, said, like I said, I just uh, I think the greatest gift you can have is to be mortgage-free. You know, for a regular person, that would be just the best gift. Uh, cars depreciating, quote-unquote, asset. A home grows in value as long as the market keeps doing what it's been doing. And, you know, that monthly, every single month or every two weeks paying the mortgage, to be able to invest that money and turn it into something else, I just think would be an incredible gift, regardless of the dollar amount actually involved. And that, yeah, that would be my pledge, would be to to pay off my friends and family, to pay off their mortgage. Uh, that's, to me, like giving them a million bucks, because over the over the, a lifetime, it's a ton of money. 157 on 680 CJOB. More on this discussion after Global News at 2 o'clock. NHL trade deadline has come to a close. That doesn't mean there aren't more deals to be made at this point. Brett, Drew Stafford, still a member of the Winnipeg Jets. He was uh, He's one of four unrestricted four age, free agents the Jets have. The others being Paul Postma, Chris Thorburn, and Andre Pavlik. But there was thoughts that the Jets would move Stafford at the deadline to get some sort of asset for him. Uh, to this point, it has not taken place. So we'll keep you in the loop. That those are uh, ice hockey players, yes. Those are ice hockey players. The Winnipeg <laughs> Jets. That is absolutely correct. So, the Winnipeg Jets uh, might be my in top five loves in my life. Might be you know like top five. Might be number five. Uh, three and four is uh, real estate. Love being involved in real estate. I think it's one of the great ways to build equity and to to build a better life for yourself. And Sean Cooper is the author of a book. It's called Burn Your Mortgage, The Simple, Powerful Path to Financial Freedom for Canadians. He joins us now. And Sean, first of all, congratulations uh, on the book, but also on managing to pay off your house in three years. And as I was mentioning before we brought you on at the end of the last hour, there's no magic pill, a lot of hard work in order to make that happen. Maybe you can uh, share your experience with us. Thank you very much for the wonderful introduction. Uh, I mean, uh, the way I essentially did it was by firstly boosting my income. I was working typically 60 to 80 hours a week. I had my full-time job and then I had what I like to call a side hustle. So I worked also as a personal finance journalist and I rented out my house, but most people usually just rent out their basement. But 
I actually lived in my basement and rented up the upstairs. So um, I did that to bring in extra income, and I lived super frugally during that time. So I was able to pay off my mortgage, uh, my 30-year mortgage in only three years. Insane. It's, I mean, a ton of work, but such a focus and, and clearly achieved your goal. Uh, I've been mentioning to Brett, I think it would be the best gift possible if you were able to do something for anyone is to pay off their mortgage. Why is living mortgage-free such an incredible gift and so empowering? Yes, I will really talk to the subtitle of my book because it has financial freedom in it, and that's the main reason that I wanted to do it because for me, being financially free meant not working a ton of hours and not having to worry about losing my job and making the next mortgage payment. It was really about getting rid of that financial stress. And for me, that's what financial freedom meant. Um, but for many people, it means many different things. I mean, it could mean traveling the world or volunteering or taking a less stressful job. But once you find figure out what your financial freedom is, it's really what motivates you to make each mortgage payment because you get one step closer in order to achieving it. How much was the house that uh, you bought? I bought my house back in August 2012 in Toronto for $425,000. So um, not every house is a million dollars in Toronto. It's a modest house, uh, and I ended up with a mortgage of 255000 so how does that work? You you had you already had what a couple hundred thousand dollars in the to go towards the house? Yes, I had a hundred and seventy thousand dollar down payment, which is quite sizable. But um, I had been working for full time two years, and then actually worked really hard in university. I was working full time during the summer, and I had three jobs uh, during the year, part time jobs. So I was able to graduate debt free and actually have money saved towards down payment when I graduated. So, Sean, sometimes when we're using humor, we exaggerate to make a point. When we're in a debate or we're speaking on the radio, we often exaggerate in order to make a point. Is that what you're doing here with with your experience? Obviously, paying off a house in three years isn't something everyone can do, but it really just highlights the, the benefits of paying it off as fast as you can, and, and you give some genuine tips in the book. Exactly. I mean, mine's kind of an extreme case, and the reason I did it was because of my upbringing. Like, growing up, my mother was a single mother raising my sister and me, and she almost lost the house on two occasions, so I just didn't want to find myself in a similar situation. But um, my book doesn't say everyone should pay off their mortgage in three years, because that's just not realistic for most people. But there are plenty of tips for people in different situations. Like, um, myself, I'm single, but if you're a family... Uh, and you have children, um, you know, I went carless, but for you, perhaps instead of having two cars, you might just be able to get by with one car, and that one car that you do purchase, it could be a two- to three-year-old used car instead of uh, buying a new car and driving it off the lot and having it lose half its value. So it's kind of um, trying to get people to think about the big picture of the finances, and, uh, you know, you don't have to go on the craft dinner diet and cap your mortgage and three years, but, you know, just kind of think of how you're spending your money and see ways that you can save money without necessarily uh, uh, sacrificing your lifestyle. What was your diet like for those three years? Well, I'm a vegetarian, so it definitely helps with my food budget, and I was able to keep it below $100 a month, um, and I did that by um, using some of the methods I talk about in my book. For example, price matching, which means that um, you can bring in a competitor's 
advertisement flyer and they'll match the price. Um, so I was able to not pay full price for pretty much anything and um, also bought in season. So if I was buying produce, I would make sure that I, and fruits, I would make sure I buy them in season and I also bought in bulk. So for non-perishable stuff, when it would go on sale, I'd make sure that I stocked up for the next two to three months so that um, I had enough uh, uh, for it to last and not have to pay the full price ever for anything. Sean, did you have to pay a penalty for paying off your mortgage in three years? Because isn't that essentially kind of like breaking a mortgage? Um, no, I, I didn't actually have to pay a penalty because um, once you get to the end of your mortgage, you have the choice of paying off the full balance or uh, renewing it. And I paid it off during the term of my mortgage. So all I had to do was pay the discharge and legal fee that I would normally have to pay um, if I chose to pay it off at the end. So there was no penalty, but I guess that my lender accidentally took the full mortgage payment out on my last payment. It should have only been a couple hundred dollars, but it took out $800. So uh, uh, besides that, I, you know, I was pretty happy to pay off my mortgage. So talk about uh, other ways that people can can be literal, literate in terms of their finances. A lot of this has to do with really tracking what you're doing. You were just talking about how you controlled your food budget. There are all other sorts of budgets that we have every month that we may not really even look at that way in terms of things that we can control. The, the money goes in the account and you keep your fingers crossed hoping that when the 28th of February or the 31st of March comes around, there's enough money in there that all the checks clear and all the payments come out without any problems. I totally agree. I mean, today we're moving towards a cashless society and I mean, I can't remember the last time I've paid in actual dollar bills and coins. I'm always using my credit card. The advantage of that is that it's convenient, but the disadvantage is that um, you lose track of your spending easily. So, my advice would be to create your would be to treat your credit card as if it's cash and keep track of your spending. Because um, if you're swiping your credit card constantly and using your mobile phone with Apple Pay, you could easily end up spending significantly more money on food, entertainment, and clothing that, than you actually budgeted for. So, you know, definitely log into your bank account and check your credit card balance uh, every so often. And before you use your credit card, um, ask yourself, will you have enough money at the end of the month in order to off the balance in full? And if the answer is no, then, you know, you should definitely think twice before using it. Now, in terms of home purchases, um, it's my understanding that one of your, your tips involves just how much house somebody might want to buy? Yes, because a common mistake that I see made, and it's not just first-time home buyers, is people end up spending um, too much money on their house, so they buy too much house, as I call it. And uh, it kind of goes like this. Let's say you go to your bank and they say that you can spend $500,000 on a house, but the key is that it's up to $500,000. You don't have to spend $500,000. So people kind of get that anchor price in their mind and they go out and spend that exact amount and they find themselves stretched financially. A uh, more expensive house not only comes with higher mortgage payments, it comes with higher carrying costs, such as utilities, home insurance, and property taxes. And you can find yourself house rich and cash poor and your mortgage can feel like a life sentence. So, you know, unless you enjoy just making mortgage payments and never going on a vacation, I certainly wouldn't recommend a lifestyle like that. 
Sean Cooper joins us. Burn Your Mortgage is his book, The Simple, Powerful Path to Financial Freedom for Canadians. He paid his mortgage off in three years, and he's not suggesting that you can do that, but there are ways for you to pay it off quicker. And with interest rates the way they are, Sean, it's so tempting to live beyond our means because when you see zero interest, it's it feels like free money to a lot of people. And shopping for interest rates and comparing interest rates at a 10 or 11% mortgage rate, the, the obvious or the difference would be obvious. But when you're looking at 3.45 or 3.75%, do you think sometimes people get a little lazy and don't realize the, the difference in that half a percentage point? I mean, over the life of your mortgage, if you can get a slightly lower rate, um, you'd end up saving thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. So it definitely um, pays off to shop around. Uh, something funny that um, there was a survey recently, people actually spend more time planning a vacation than they do shopping around for a mortgage. Um, so if you really don't enjoy shopping around for a mortgage, you know, do it on our rainy uh, afternoon one Sunday and uh, Spending two, three hours, I mean, you could end up saving tens of thousands of dollars. Don't you think it's worth that three hours of your time? I certainly think it is. Do you plan to continue? Are are you still working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, or is that behind you now? Well, the funny thing is, um, I said that I would, my goal is to work less, and uh, then I decided to write the book, so I've been working uh, just as much as before. But I'm definitely, now that the book is out, I'm definitely planning to cut back on the work schedule, maybe get down to a 50-hour work week. We'll, we'll see, but, um, you know, certainly don't recommend working that many hours forever because, uh, you know, I don't think you'll live there very long. And I'm also looking to travel more as well, so uh, I'm going to be taking a big trip this summer just trying to decide uh, where to travel to. But, you know, it's wonderful not to have to worry about mortgage payments and have the rest of my life in front of me and be able to enjoy myself and, you know, not have to worry about making that next payment. Well, it's an extraordinary accomplishment. Burn Your Mortgage, The Simple, Powerful Path to Financial Freedom. Sean Cooper is the author. You can go to seancooperwriter.com. You can go to all your regular places to get this book. It's uh, a great read and some outstanding advice in this, Sean, and your life advice. Uh, We appreciate you sharing it with us. Last question, do you live in the basement suite or are you living upstairs now? (laughs) Probably the most question, common question I've received, but I'm still living in the basement. And the reason is because a paid-off house is only step one in financial freedom. If all your money's in your house, you have to sell it to get it and your money. And I don't want to do that, so I'm taking the money I was putting towards my mortgage, and I'm actually saving that in my tax-free savings account and RSPs. So you know, I don't want to be in the workforce forever. I want to retire one day. So you know, anyone in this position, definitely start saving your money because, you know, unless you have a gold-plated pension plan from uh, government, then, you know, we have to have some retirement savings. Sean, thank you so much for this. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm inspired, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, and, well, and it, it's, it, as he was talking about, the discipline. I think there, there is, uh, I've always had problems with discipline when it, term, when it comes to finances, and I realize that. I mean, there is a, there is a reason why I'm, I work Monday to Friday and Saturday is because I've had some discipline issues with my finances over the years. But uh, to hear that this, this young man who I think he was, he's 30, he was 30 years old when he paid off. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mortgage, so he has his house for three years, pays it off, and now he wants to invest all of that money, which 
He's going to invest a lot of money really fast. Well, he's probably bringing in. I we, we should have asked him, but I'm going to guess a minimum of a thousand bucks a month from his house that he lives in the basement suite. Yeah. So you start turning that into some serious dough when you invest it wisely. We've got some good text messages on this that we'll read to you when we come back. 7806868 if you'd like to weigh in on this. Greg Mackling and Brett McGarry with you on this Wednesday afternoon. Your forecast is next. He's Brett. I'm Greg. Sean Cooper. He uh, created a little bit of a stir on our <laughs> texting machine at 7806868. Paid off his mortgage in three years. Suggested that he... Uh, Managed to uh, get by on $100 a month of groceries. That had one person questioning his entire philosophy on paying off his mortgage. You know, it was an exaggeration to make a point, right? He did something almost impossible for most people to pay off their mortgage in three years. But what about to pay it off in five or 10 or 12 years? The point of the book is to get there as fast as you can. Think about your financial situation and do it differently than the way you're doing it unless you're really accelerating things already. And I, th- I think that's the basic point of our conversation with Sean. Yeah, and one of the things, and he didn't mention it in our interview, but he has said it before that Kraft Dinner has probably been his best friend mm-hmm. for three years, and that is certainly not expensive. So you could buy, you know, I think I've, I was once, uh, I bought, once bought a box of 10 or 12 or whatever, and it's under $10, so that's cheap. So if he's buying, if he's eating craft dinner and, and cheap stuff like that, then yeah, the $100 a month kind of seems maybe plausible. And he's a, clearly an incredibly disciplined person. So this is a guy who probably eats his three square meals a day and never deviates. That's right. So the $100, I certainly couldn't do $100 a month. No. But no. this guy probably could. Based on our conversation with him, I don't doubt him. Uh, at least one of you doubted the fact uh, that he could live on that. Here's a text message. Uh, this is awesome. I paid my mortgage off in 10 years. It would have been five But I opted to take several long trips, three to four months each, a few short trips, and to buy myself a convertible in that first five years. I probably could have still done less than 10, but I did more trips and bought a trailer in those next five years as well. The key to my success was buying in a cheaper, okay, the cheapest neighborhood and having a roommate, rounding up my mortgage payment, took years off as well. The most I've ever made is $35,000 a year. Being mortgage-free has allowed me to quit my job and pursue my dream. Still having a room uh, roommate make sure I can still pay my bills when my dream doesn't turn, the cash that I might uh, hope for. That is outstanding. Thank you for that. Yeah, good for you. And again, this is uh, this is kind of, this has been a bit of an eye-opener of a conversation this last half hour. For me, in a little bit, not I don't suddenly have visions of, oh, I'm going to go buy a house and I'm going to pay it off immediately because I personally don't know that I even want to live in a house again. I kind of like living in an apartment. But it's clear that some of the financial constraints I place on myself, or maybe not constraints, but these ideas that, oh, I can't afford this, can't afford that. Well, maybe I can if I just work a little bit yeah, harder. Yeah, right. and you know what? And it's not harder, I don't think, Brett. It's about working smarter, right? And just realizing, you know, Scotiabank has this slogan, you're richer than you think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of advertising uh, when it comes to financial stuff is a little bit, <sighs> really? Okay, that you're not talking to me. <laughs> I think you're richer than you think applies to everybody. 
I think we all have more money than we realize uh, because we do a terrible job of keeping track of where we spend it, how we waste it, because there's a lot of places that we uh, simply pour good money after bad. 227 on 680 CJOB. Global News coming up next. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you. 2.33 Wednesday afternoon. I'm on the hump day train now. Wednesday is a good day. We're on the down low on the way to the weekend. <laughs> Lots of people get involved in sports, all sorts of sports, uh, whether you're coaching, participating, you're a parent, cheering on the sidelines. Uh, kids are as active as they've ever been. And the city of Winnipeg wants to know what you think about sports fields, athletic fields here in our city. There's a survey. You can go to cjob.com. And they want your input. I've been on the survey filling it out right now. And I must confess, last year, I was as vocal uh, a person as there was talking about the lack of maintenance in these fields. And I'm wondering if the city of Winnipeg has heard our hue and our cry. Uh, Yonina Ewart is Parks and Service Administrator with the city of Winnipeg. And she's joining us now on 680CJOB to talk about this survey. Yonina, thank you for your time. Hello, and uh, thank you for having me. What's the purpose of this study? Well, the purpose of the study is, I think, as you're well aware, the residents of uh, Winnipeg do love their athletic fields, and the city continues to make significant investment in these athletic fields, and athletic fields are part of a healthy, growing city. So the city is currently reviewing how these athletic fields are allocated and maintained, and we're looking for Winnipegers' feedback on this. So this has been a priority for the city, uh, providing this service and and these athletic fields. I didn't realize the gigantic number of fields uh, that are involved. Can you give us some statistics, Yonina? Sure. There's approximately 1,000 athletic fields. And um, I think if you've been to a large site, you may um, have noticed that sometimes there's a little overlap between some of the uh, end fields in soccer and baseball. But in total, there's about 1,000 with 532 soccer fields and about uh, 400 ball diamonds. And of those 1,000 fields, 93 of these are leased out uh, exclusively to uh, specific uh, sports organizations. And when they're leased out, are they then become the uh, concern in terms of maintenance of those groups or does the city continue to maintain those fields? And can you give us maybe a couple of examples of fields that might be leased out? Um, I can give you an example out at uh, Maple Grove, if anyone is aware of um, that site where Mustangs operate, uh, as well as Rugby Manitoba and uh, MOD, so the DISC, uh, Ultimate DISC group, and they uh, all look after their fields, and um, that's an example of a, a leased area. So when we're talking about, um, you know, getting the public's feedback, Is this, I guess, partly due to maybe people speaking out about some fields that tend to to get either overrun by stuff like dandelions or maybe just craters from wear and tear? Well, the study is reviewing the field condition and, um, and and our booking process, and we encourage the public and the sports organization with, to provide us with details, you know, such as what you're um, uh, recommending there or um, illustrating. Yeah, I've actually been on the survey. It tells me I'm a 
about 87% uh, through it. And a lot of it are yes or no, building priorities and uh, ranking them. But there are a couple of different opportunities for you to to enter your additional comments, which is which is outstanding. So what will happen once the survey is completed, Yonina? What would be the next step and what would be the fate of the, the data in the survey? Sure. Well, as you um, have already indicated, that the online survey went out today, and we're asking for all residents to provide their perspectives on the current and future needs, and this survey will close March 27th. Uh, And then in the coming months, uh, we'll ask the residents, user groups, and stakeholders, um, they'll be provided with additional opportunities for input through various workshops. And I'd like to mention that so far we've um, spoken with uh, focused stakeholders and user groups, uh, and that began in the fall of 2016, and that included some in-person discussions and some uh, user group questionnaire. So all that information is going to be collected through the engagement, um, along with other forms of research, you know, benchmarking, what are other uh, cities doing, and all this information will be used to inform the uh, draft record. So it's the public who is going to help us uh, inform the recommendations. One of the uh, the things that you're looking to accomplish with this review, I gather, is that you wanted the public's feedback on not just maintenance of these fields, but whether or not the fields are being shared fairly. Uh, Are there any examples that jump to mind in terms of the question as to whether or not the fields are being shared properly? Well, I think that um, sometimes um, people might see that uh, they've tried to book a field and and it's not uh, available. And uh, that can um, happen for a number of reasons. You know, the the coach is sick and so they canceled practice. Um, But there's other situations whereby um, for adults we have a three-hour time block. So the game may only last an hour and so there's two hours when the field is empty. Um, And there's also an opportunity where community centers when they maintain specific fields can blanket book so they can say I need these fields for three nights of the week for this number of hours and and um, so they they have that opportunity to blanket book so those are some of the um, issues that we'd like to review and if we can help to resolve some of those um, concerns that uh, come about because of those practices, then uh, that'll be one of our some of our recommendations. That leads to the perception. One of the things that you just outlined may lead to the perception that, oh, I'd like to book that field, but nobody's using it. And so then there's a perception perhaps that there's not accessibility or that there's an inefficiency in the system when we would like to use the field. Nobody's using it anyway, but I'm being told, no, I can't use it. Is, is that one of the things people complain about? Um, Some of the things that people complain about is that they can't actually book a field. If a field was empty and um, you wanted to go and uh, have a game of pickup, you're more than welcome to use that field for that. But if a team that has booked that field wants to go on it, then um, you'd have to give up that space for the the team that's actually booked that field. Yonina, thank you for this. And uh, how can people access the survey? We've already let them know they can go to cjob.com. We've got a link there. Uh, What's uh, another or an alternate way for them to do that? Well, first of all, thank you very much for uh, putting it on your website. And the other um, way you can access it is through the winnipeg.ca athletic field review. And uh, once you get onto that site, then you can access the survey. 
Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Yonina. All right. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to invite everyone to participate. Yonina Ewart, she's Parks and Services uh, Administrator with the City of Winnipeg. That's, uh, I mean, I don't spend a lot of times in the fields anymore. It's been a while since I've played the sports, the field variety. <laughs> but uh, you have kids who I would imagine have been on a soccer field or a ball diamond of late. Yeah, absolutely. And last year it was atrocious at times, some of the conditions of some of the fields. I understand that there was the new pesticide um restrictions that came into effect last year and that was a struggle for the city not only at ball fields and soccer pitches but also on boulevards and other you know common areas and parks and so I understood to a certain extent that it was going to be a challenge to keep these uh, places these public places pristine but man it was beyond an acceptable level of maintenance in my mind last year. And it just isn't the dandelions. It's a lack of the cutting of the grass. And some people think the two go hand in hand, but it's also just, you know, making sure that a ball diamond has the proper amount of dirt and that when there's been rain, that somebody goes out and maintains it. I know it costs money, but you know, parents pay a lot of money for their kids to be in organized sports. And with something like baseball, once you, pay for the uniform and the equipment, the bulk of the money is going to renting those fields. And you expect them to be at a certain level of acceptability when you go and you take your kids to uh, perform and to play. And quite often last year, it was a massive failing grade in in my interpretation. It was, it was embarrassing is what it was for a lot of these fields. I uh, remember just when I was a kid, uh, we'll go back about 30 years now, and I remember taking a, a ball to the face, just a, a fairly simple grounder into, I guess it would have been left field. And uh, just kind of, it just sort of took a hop off of a crater in the in the grass. And it, it, of course, it wasn't pleasant taking a, a, a speedy baseball to the face, but I thought that. That shouldn't have happened. <laughs> the ball was just rolling straight at me. It wasn't bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. It just hit the spot uh, that was, you know, it was a crater in the field. I just believe in if you're doing something, you're offering a service, do it right. Mm-hmm. And if you can't maintain the fields you have, cut back on the number of fields. Don't say that this is a baseball diamond when it clearly is not. It's a makeshift something that you've put on the list of available fields so that you have enough inventory to satisfy. I would much rather, you know, be in a situation where we don't have enough fields that are adequately maintained versus being a situation where, oh yeah, we got lots of fields, but they're, but they're garbage. And you know, let's, let's think about this. Let's do it right. And uh, yeah, it was really a stick in my craw last year without any question. Hopefully things get better this year. And I applaud the city for asking for input because it's not all going to be positive. And it just means hopefully that they are looking to make changes and they understand and realize that things aren't going the way they ought to be going. And a thousand fields, that's a lot of fields sure is. as well. So is mm-hmm. it a situation where they're simply overwhelmed? Maybe you're, as you pointed out, maybe cutting back on the number of fields is the way to go. If they, if it's just too much for them to do, then maybe they need to 
do something different. So maybe that's the question. Would you rather have 300 fields that are maintained properly to a level of service that we expect or having a thousand fields that are all maybe kind of sort of maintained. Would love to hear from you at 780-6868 or via email brett at cjob.com or gmac at cjob.com. That phone number again, 204-780-6868. Talk or text. Would you rather have a smaller number of fields that are well-maintained or stick with sort of the status quo, a thousand fields that are maybe, well, let's face it, some of them are in garbage crap condition. That is an outstanding way to put it, Brett McGarry. 246 on 680 CJOB, your forecast up next. The city wants your take on athletic fields and their maintenance or lack thereof. In some cases, they want your feedback. Go to cjb.com and you can uh, easily find a link to the survey and voice your opinion on how the city manages and maintains a thousand athletic fields, which includes 532 soccer fields and 375 ball diamonds and around 93 fields are leased out exclusively. And those fields tend to, to be better maintained, right? Because those groups are, are maintaining them for their personal use and we want to get your feedback. I know the city wants yours. We want it as well at 780-6868. Cleveland joins us now. Cleve, what do you think? Um, I, I don't have a problem so much with maintenance. Like my son plays on a, on a field and stuff like that for the rods. And uh, one of the incentives is actually for the parents is that if we help maintain the fields, we get a deduction off our fees, which is really great. But what my problem is is the policing. There's not enough, um, with a thousand fields, there's not enough people that take care of the, the pet owners. And I, I just, it's horrible, you know, like I know there's a lot of good pet owners out there that go up and clean up their animals. They have these signs at the, at the, uh, at the gates that say, you know, keep your dog on a leash and stuff like that. But there's so many pet owners that leave their dogs behind, this mess behind, and these poor kids go sliding through the stuff. And it's just horrible. They end up just being so distraught afterwards. What they need is more policing of these fields than just uh, just the maintenance, I think. And I just want, I'm going to go to this little thing and blurb off a bit, you know, and say that <laughs> kind of thing. Because I, I, it happened to my son last year. And, oh, yeah. Uh, it was just horrible. He just was so, he just went sliding right through it. Oh, and it boy. was just horrible. Well, but, you, um, you didn't tell him it was good luck? That's what my great-grandmother told me when a bird pooped on me. She said, oh, that's good luck. Well, there's a big difference between a pile of bird poop and a pile of dog poop, I can tell you. I agree 100%. Yeah, fill out that survey, Cleve, and I think that's a really good point, especially with all the money that we pay to license our animals. Mm-hmm. You know, there should be some room in the budget for enforcement and stuff like that. Yeah, I, and look, I, I, I'm i going to sort of just... Pick a potential situation here. When I had a dog, there would would be the odd time where I didn't bring enough bags. Right. Where Dexter oh, had to take care of business multiple times. Oh, Dexter! So I brought. I would have, typically bring two bags, and there was one time I remember where he needed to to answer the call three times. And I thought, well. Crap. <laughs> what do I do now? Literally. Yeah. <laughs> what do I do? I don't know. What to, I had to just leave it. I could. I, you couldn't come back? Well, I could come back, but I'm not going to. 
But the I, point is, I this think is, for the most part, you are a responsible. You were a responsible dog owner. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people that don't even take one bag with them when they take their animals for a walk. It's you a, know that and you see oh, it oh, all yeah. the time. Yes, and that's why people like Larry David exist to call them out for that kind of behavior. It's uh, it's shameful. It's it's uh, disgusting. If you have a dog, pick it up. That's that's it. Oh, it is so plain and simple. I don't understand how people can't allow their dogs to go anywhere. I remember walking Abby one morning on a Sunday. I remember it distinctly, and I thought I'd brought a bag in my back pocket, and either I dropped it or I just forgot to do it. I immediately ran to one of the houses. I knocked on the door. I said, hey, have you got an old Safeway bag or something? My dog. And the neighbor, you know, 40, 50 houses away, didn't recognize me. He said, where do you live? I told him where I lived. That is so nice of you, he says, for because most people wouldn't bother. And I got him worked up, right? No, most people wouldn't bother to do that. I think that's great that you did that. And it's just, I mean, A, met a new neighbor, did the right thing. And, uh, you know, bottom line, it's just like you say, Brett, just pick up after your dog. It's not that hard. He's just pretty soft. Just as a side note, I... <laughs> I'm I'm getting, I can't believe this, and I'll I'll actually read a quote of a text message that I typed out. The quote is, LOL, why are we arguing about craft dinner? I gave an example in our earlier segment where we were talking about Sean Cooper who burned his mortgage and paid his mortgage off in three years, and he mentioned craft dinner as his friend. So I just gave in head that his budget for food was a hundred dollars a month. Right. And I gave the and I said, you know, craft dinner's not all that expensive. They right. get get those big those boxes of ten or whatever. I said you can get them for under ten dollars. I mean, it's been a, a long time since I've bought that. That's what they used to cost. Well, one of our listeners here <laughs> is very passionate about craft dinner. Yes, indeed. has been has been sending me photos, <laughs> screenshots of what it costs to buy at Walmart, and I uh-huh. guess a box of twelve at Walmart is sixteen dollars and forty seven cents, not uh-huh. ten as I initially surmised. Ooh. So I apologize for my generalization on the price of craft dinner. Fake news, Brett. It's fake news. Alternative 16, facts. Sixteen times two is sixteen is about forty eight fifty bucks. Mm-hmm. So there's all your dinners for a month. Yeah. Fifty bucks, right? You'd need uh, th- three cases, three dozen ought to do it. You sneak it in there for the odd uh, lunch, maybe some wiener water soup. Although Sean is a vegetarian, but you know, if you cook the hot dogs on Monday, you can have wiener water soup Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> wiener water soup? Yeah. Yeah, what is that? That's how you stretch the hot dogs. You know the water that you boil the hot dogs in? Yeah. Yeah, you don't dump that out, man. You need A, you need a grease trap for that oh if you God. dump that down the thing. And if you uh if you don't use too much water, you can actually, you know, it's good soup. <laughs> Okay, well then, look at that. You learn something new every day. I did also point out to this listener that it's 97 cents at Superstore at no, the moment. No, it's not. But he, count, he or she countered immediately saying, oh, it's on sale only for two days, limit four. So this person knows his or her craft dinner. I commend you for that. I would suggest adding uh, extra cheddar cheese to the craft dinner. And you got to have ketchup. I don't like uh, ketchup on the craft dinner. Donald Trump puts ketchup on his well-done $90 steaks. Well, he's dumb. 257 on 680 CJOB. Global News up next. Yesterday, we determined that in 2012, Kingswood Golf Club opened March 17th. (laughs) 
What are the chances of that happening this year? Yeah, I think the chances uh, when we look at the forecast tonight, clear and a low of minus 25. I don't think that's happening. So you're saying we're not golfing 16 days from now? Is Are you going out way on a limb to predict that? I think that's a safe bet, yes. I think it In the is. meantime, it'll be uh, Golf Dome. Golf Dome, yes. the home away from home for golf. <laughs> yeah, Brett right. McGarry is an avid golfer. I love golfing, and but I hate going out to golf because then I remember how much I love it because I don't have time to you golf as often <laughs> as I'd like. Does that make any sense whatsoever? It does. You have time. You don't have the time to golf, so you don't do it oh, that often I because love you it. love it. I love it when I do it. Such a crazy game. Just when you think you got it figured out. Uh, it comes back, it reels you in and spits you out. Uh, ideas being tossed around. The Royal and Ancient and United States Golf Associations are uh, planning some new rules for a new generation of golfers. If their ideas um, come to fruition, there's going to be some dramatic changes here, Brett, and you'll have to modify the way you play a little bit. And the first thing is the new rule book will be drawn up in a modern playing style that will be written from a player's perspective. And uh, these changes are possibly going to be implemented as early as 2019 in order to get a handle on some of these rules. And maybe these are rules that you're already playing by and mm-hmm. you, you shouldn't be. Bob Fallis joins us. He's officials committee chair uh, with uh, Golf Manitoba and level four certified rules official. Bob, thank you for taking, taking the time with us. Pleasure to be here. So what do you think, uh, March 16th, a little bit, or 17th, a little bit too soon for us to hope to be out on the fairways this year? Well, it is for me, that's for sure. I'm not going out there when it's that cold. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Bob, some of these uh, rules that are being proposed right now, really it's an effort to to have golf played at a higher pace. Is that safe to say? Oh, absolutely. They're going to, one of the rule changes will be that you get three minutes to look for a lost ball instead of five. Well, and here's here's one of the things about these these rule changes because when we're talking about golf pace of play for you know regular schmucks like us, like me and Greg, a lot of us might not even be aware of some of those rules. So, like, I didn't know, for example, that there was a five minute limit. I don't well, like I, to spend more than five minutes anyway, but you know, yeah, I I suspect uh, the vast majority of golfers don't know the the rules per se. You know, they they know in general that you're supposed to play it as it lies, but then the the rest of it they get lost on. So sometimes you go out golfing, maybe you're not as adept at the rules and maybe you're not adept at the game at all, but you'll have that one person in your foursome who seems to know the rule book backwards and forwards. Uh, even though there's no money on the line, they seem to catch it every time, like... Remove any penalty. This is one of the proposals to remove any pedal for penalty for accidentally moving your ball. Like I know there's some guys, you know, you accidentally touch the ball with your driver on the tee. Oh, there's one. Well, no, that's not that's not even a rule now, is it? No, it's not at the moment. That uh, if you touch the ball on the tee, it's it, the ball's not in play, so it doesn't count. So what are some of the other uh, misconstrued rules, uh, Bob? That uh, you get people asking about all the time. Uh, where's the nearest point of relief? Uh, can I, you know, I can have two club links uh, all the time. Uh, it, it varies. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Bob, these rule changes that they're proposing, yep. do, they, do they affect, who do they affect more? Do they affect professional golfers more who are playing in actual tournaments or people who are just going out to have a good time on the weekend? 
Well, the the people going out for a good time in the weekend should have a lot more fun with these rules uh, from what little I've read of them. It's going to be faster. It's going to be easier. And a, a lot of the penalties have been removed, or at the very least, the penalty has been reduced. Like For example, one of the proposed changes that I think that I like is to set a maximum score for a hole, like a double like a double par or a triple bogey, so that yep. you can just pick up, walk off the hole, and you're done, rather than having to mark down like a 15 on your scorecard. Absolutely. Good idea. But do you think that that takes away from the purity of the game? Well, it will for the people that worry about that, but for, the, for most players, no, not at all. Bob, I've heard the rumor that most people will never break 100 playing golf. Is that, is that accurate? Do you know that? It's more than 50%. I think it's more like 70 or 80%. We'll never break 100 on a on a fairly regulation-side course. So yeah. a, a lot of people take themselves a little bit too seriously on the golf course, and that's a whole other question and a whole <laughs> other conversation. You can learn so much about someone by spending four hours with them on the golf course. Uh, another one that I found interesting, because it does take a lot of time, and that is a proposal to allow you to leave the flagstick in the hole even when you're putting. They found that it makes little or no difference. Could it not? Could, how do you mean it makes little to no difference? Well, if, even if it's in the hole, it isn't going to make much difference when you putt. The ball's either going in or it won't. Hmm. As a matter of fact, it's it's probably to your disadvantage if you leave it in the hole. Well, because I've I have seen putts sort of roll around the hole. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> so wouldn't the, wouldn't the flag? Couldn't that potentially no. help? Oh, it wouldn't make any difference. I don't think it would make any difference anyway. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Well, I think some of these rules are outstanding. And do we have to play faster overall, Bob? Is that is that a genuine concern here? Are we making mountains out of molehills? Because Brett and I and everyone I talk to agree that, that golf is just too large of a, an investment in time for a lot of people. And part of that is the pace of play on golf courses. Well, yeah, and then people walking around looking at their putt or looking at their shot or not being ready to play. I mean, most of slow play is uh, just a matter of not being ready. Well, and that's one of the things I wonder here, Bob, is you can, is, you can change all the rules in the world, but if people aren't being courteous or aren't sticking to proper etiquette, does do the rules really matter? Nope. No, they don't. <laughs> you know, those people don't care anyway. Well, how do we change that? How do we get, because I realize that not everybody going to the golf course, uh, some people just want to go and smack a ball around, but you know that etiquette is a big part of the game. So how do we educate people who want to go to the golf course to, to maybe pay a little bit more attention to the, the courtesy and the etiquette? Well, it's usually just a little bit of practice and uh, watching other people and how they react on the golf course and uh, just being friendly with other people and... Uh, giving them a chance to hit one and be quiet while they're doing it. I want, I want to ask you one more question here. Some golf courses enforce a mandatory power cart rule, uh, for example, on weekends when it's busier, because they say it, it, it encourages faster pace of play. What do you think of that? Uh, it depends on the people in the carts. I mean, it, it's still a matter of being ready to play when, you're, when it's your turn. All right. Bob? Thanks, Bob. Thank you very much. Bob Fallis is the Officials Committee Chair, Level 4 Certified Rules Official with Golf Manitoba. I actually 
Wouldn't mind ranting a little bit more about golf in a moment. But we do need to pause for traffic and weather together next on 680 CJOB. Golf, something that a lot of people enjoy. I mentioned it with uh, Jeff this afternoon at Manitoba and Minnesota are two jurisdictions that have the most golfers anywhere on the planet. Uh, that may be an old statistic, but there's aren't too many people that I don't know that get out at least for a tournament, a Texas scramble or something at some point in the year. And g- golf is a huge passion for you, Brett. And etiquette, as Jeff Courier also mentioned, etiquette comes before the rules of play in the rules of golf. And you're bothered by the lack of etiquette that some people express. Uh, if I'm putting words into your mouth I, mouth, I apologize. No, well, you're not. And I think one of the reasons why I sort of take the etiquette seriously is partly from golfing with Jeff. Uh, the first time he took me out to Kingswood, he sort of uh, reinforced what I had kind of known about etiquette. And uh, over the years since then, I've, I've become more observant of it. And I think that these rule changes that they're proposing today are great but they only work if the people playing follow them. For example, there's one here that says they, they're recommending that it becomes a rule that no player takes more than 40 seconds to hit a shot, mm-hmm. which I, I think that's outstanding. But how do you enforce that? I mean, we I have played golf with guys who take 20 practice swings. I have played golf with the behind people who where there's a, they're a foursome and they're all in their carts, and while they wait for the people in front of them to get out of the way, instead of being out of the carts, club in hand, by their ball, ready to fire, they're all sitting in their carts. And then when the group in front of them moves out off to out of firing range, then they pull their carts up to the balls and get out, and then they start... You can see the the see the the hamster spinning. What what am I going to hit here? What you club do have, I need? You should be ready immediately. So sure. no rule changes are going to help if the people playing the game are not being courteous. Yeah, so, if your intent intention is to be a fast player, you will be a fast player. If your intention is to be oblivious to everyone else on the golf course, guess what? That's what rules, and that's what rules supreme. Unfortunately. Now, at least there are some courses have great marshals. Yes. Uh, Grand Pines, for example, they will, <laughs> if you slow down for a second, they are on you. <laughs> and I appreciate that. I sure, like when they sure. say, hey, guys, got to pick it up. And uh, I will listen to that. But uh, so I appreciate when courses will tell you to get moving. But anyway, all this talk about golf has me excited to return to my home, my real home, which is Kingswood in LaSalle. Uh, hopefully. Hopefully March 17th, but I think that's a little too optimistic. Here's me holding my breath. It's 322. Not. Traffic, weather, sports, all up next. 338 on this Wednesday afternoon, Greg and Brett. Brett, you have some prizes up your sleeve? Yes, we have two sets of two tickets what? to see Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. I'm sleepless night down in the laundry mat. Watching the clothes. Tom Wilson has such a fabulous voice. This Canadian group is going to be playing Burton Cummings Theatre March 4th. That is this Saturday. We tried to give a pair of tickets away yesterday, but the trivia question was a stumper. So we're just going to give two sets of tickets away right now. Callers 4 and 5. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. We'll crack those lines right now. Callers 4 and 5 at 204-780-6868. Going to see Blackie and the Rodeo Kings this Saturday at Burton Cummings Theatre. All righty. Good luck.
in it, the mean you're pretty tough you're pretty tough on these listeners well yesterday the trivia was uh you know I, it wasn't that difficult but just for the purposes of time and make sure we actually get these tickets out we'll just simplify it today and i'll Come up with something else tomorrow. I know a gentleman who would probably like to go to the concert, but he's hoping to be super busy Saturday night. On Friday night, Kirby Shep, head coach of the Manitoba Bison men's basketball team, looks to take his team to the national championships, and I believe it's for the first time since 1985, Kirby. You're on quite a heater here. Started out the season 2-6, and 12-8 and eight since, 4-0 and oh in the playoffs, looking good for this uh, upcoming battle with the Dinos in Calgary Friday night. Uh, how are you guys feeling and uh, getting ready for uh, this gigantic game, one of the bigger games in uh, your tenure as coach of the, of the Bison? Yeah, certainly it was a big game. I was almost, though, I should say, listening on the phone here, I was just about to hang up the phone and call back and see if I could be <laughs> caller four or five here and tell you guys for the date. I was, I was ready to, to jump all over that and get my fingers moving and uh, – uh, it was and then you guys said the date, and unfortunately, it didn't quite work for me. Oh, but, that's that's uh, okay, yeah. Kirby. We'll uh, we'll 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 hook you up next time. So, awesome. th- th- this is th- this has got to be uh, super exciting for you and your players. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we made this point last year. I mean, in the final four, but uh, probably a little less expected, just the way the you know the schedule worked out in that uh, this year. I mean. Uh, we won our first round series against Regina, and then we went to UBC. I think uh, everybody in the country expects us to lose that one. UBC was uh, 19-1. I uh, was undefeated in exhibition play as well. And, you know, in, uh, all year long, you had lost a game in their home court, and they were the number two ranked team in the nation. So we were uh, widely expected to be uh, quickly dismissed and uh, sent home, and uh, guys really pulled together and managed to win two on their home floor and, and send us to Calgary. So phenomenal opportunity, as you said, Camelot's Final Four. and just going to win one more game to uh, to get to the national championships in Halifax next week. And I suspect that you're asking your players not to look ahead, so I will refrain from doing that to you uh, yourself, Kirby. What's it going to take to, to beat this Calgary team that, that showed you the door last year, 174 in the uh, Canada West Final Four. What do you have to do to beat a team that you split a season series with? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping we're a little bit more mentally ready. I mean, uh, I think last year in that situation, uh, you know, Carter was number one seed as well. And uh, uh, I think just the the moment and the they do a great job of, you know, filling the stands and, uh, really, really noisy environment, and I don't think we necessarily, as some of our players talked about this week, I don't think we were ready for the moment last year, uh, quite the same, quite the same way. And uh, you know that experience, I think, has helped prepare us for this year. We went and played there this year in the league, uh, very first uh, open weekend league, played at Calgary. Uh, we, we split. We won the whole, won the first game, lost the second game to them. So, and I know. I know the guys believe we can do it. Uh, I know that they believe we're, we're more ready. I feel like we're more ready to go this year. We're more prepared for this situation. And uh, But certainly they're, they're an outstanding team. They're going to play our best basketball. Where are your players from? Are they, are they all from Manitoba? Or are they sort of from various locations across Canada? Well, I mean, we've, we've had a history of, uh, I know, as a lot of teams do across the country, of recruiting uh, nationwide and, and really worldwide. I mean, we've had players from from all over the world on on our roster, but uh, we're really proud to say, you know, this year especially in the last two years, we've the core of our team has been Winnipeg guys or Manitoba guys, and 
I mean, last year, I think uh, every game we started uh, five five Winnipeg players. This year, slightly different. Every game we started four Winnipeg players. Uh, we've got uh, one young man from Ajax, Ontario, another one from uh, from Scarborough, and uh, we've got another another player uh, from Washington D.C. But uh, outside of that, we are we are very much a Manitoba team, and uh, very proudly so that uh, we've been able to keep keep some homegrown talent home and, and develop them and, and make them the core of our program. Does the fact that sorry, Greg, does no, the Greg. fact that that these players are mostly from or the core is from mostly from Manitoba, uh, does that uh, say anything about the growth of the sport in our province? Yeah, certainly. I mean, certainly we've had a number of, you know, grassroots players that have, you know, come up and done very, very well. And actually, I think if you look all across the country on on uh, on, on CIS rosters, you know, across across the nation, uh, Winnipeg and, and Manitoba General is extremely well represented. I would even say, you know, I don't, I don't have exact numbers on this, but uh, per capita, we're, we're as or better represented in any city, you know, across the country. So, We've got a number of players playing in the U.S. as well right now, and I expect that to continue. And I think that's a tribute to the you know great developmental work of our clubs and other programs, as well as Basketball Manitoba has done a phenomenal job developing players. And, and the popularity, at least certainly on the on the guys' level, has been has been certainly growing and uh, continues to grow you know across the province. And it's just great to see. Kirby, best of luck. Hopefully we'll have an excuse to talk to you on Sports Sunday with myself and Keith McCullough on Sunday afternoon. Uh, keep up the good work and uh, make the Bison Nation proud. Thanks, Sean. We're looking forward to it. Thanks, Kirby. Kirby Shep, head coach of the Manitoba Bison men's basketball team. They are in the Canada West Final Four. They take on the Calgary Dinos, 9 o'clock hour time in Calgary. It's the Canada West semifinal. And if they win that game, they will automatically advance to the national Final eight in Halifax. And uh, just for your trivia lovers, the University of Manitoba men's basketball team has not won a national championship since 1975-76. Whoa. It's been a while. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB.